Hello, and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by Chike Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode will be an interview about Ethiopian philosophy with Theodros Kiros, who is Associate Professor of Philosophy in the Liberal Arts Department at the Berkeley College of Music, a Du Bois Fellow at Harvard University, and producer of African Ascent, a television program which is produced right here in my hometown of Boston. <laughs> so uh, hello, Professor Kiros. Hello, uh, Professor uh, Adams. How Thank are you, sir? I'm great. Uh, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Your work has uh, has spanned a variety of genres because you've written essays about political philosophy, books about political philosophy, you've worked on the history of philosophy, and you're also a novelist. And so I wanted to ask you basically to just start by telling us how Ethiopian philosophy has informed this broad spectrum of work that you've done. Well, um, that is um, a very general question, but uh, let me try to uh, break it to pieces. Uh, it is true. Uh, that my work, my philosophical work, which really includes um, 10 published books and uh, two books on the way, one of the two books on the way called Self-Definition of Philosophical Discourse, uh, is uh, strictly speaking not a work of uh, uh, Ethiopian philosophy. It is a a work that tries to engage uh, philosophy proper uh, by rethinking um, how it is uh, that these um, binaries, these orientations, sex, gender, and race came into being. Not by beginning uh, with with, uh, European literature, as most of the authorities, such as Foucault himself and uh, Judith Butler and a few others do, Uh, but I engage the uh, construction of race, gender, and sex by beginning with ancient Egypt and through Egypt to India, China, and so on. So a major portion of this work uh, uh, is an attempt to globalize uh, the nature of philosophy itself. Uh, Because as you know, uh, Professor Adamson, uh, philosophy still continues to be local. It is not sufficiently global, as the philosopher from Vienna, Anke Granas, contended in a recent piece that she wrote called Is Global Justice Really Global? Then the second, the second unfinished project called The Passionate Man, that work too, which is a sequel to Cambridge Days, one of my primary novels, is strictly speaking uh, not an exercise in um, using uh, Ethiopian data, uh, but simply uh, thinking and uh, philosophically examining uh, what uh, human beings do uh, as I watch them, as I keenly observe them in buses, uh, trains, on my way from here to Berkeley. Uh, For me, uh, every human event, literally every human event is uh, potentially uh, philosophic. So I use my um, uh, 
limited abilities um, as a writer, um, and I develop uh, I develop characters, and uh, I bring in uh, my uh, philosophical interest in the form of uh, dialogues, and uh, I make my characters speak philosophy. Now, uh, the other works, on the other hand, beginning with my first work on Antonio Gramsci, the founder of the Italian Communist Party, which I wrote uh, when I was, I think, about uh, 28 or 29, uh, followed by a moral philosophy and development two or three years later. Uh, then uh, self-construction and the formation of human values, which led to uh, a collection um, of essays that I wrote for the Ethiopian Reporter, um, Ethiopia's leading uh, newspaper, as a columnist for about five years. All my columns were collected and they produced uh, two volumes of uh, philosophical work. Then, uh, one of them is called Philosophical Essays and the other one is called Ethiopian uh, Discourse. So the first eight books, I think, are informed by my Ethiopianity, uh, an identity or an attribute, of course, that I did not choose uh, as an exercise in self-definition. Uh, I just woke up one day and I discovered that I'm an Ethiopian <laughs> and in that the world identifies me as such. One of the themes you've talked about, in, especially in the political part of your work that you've just given us an overview of, is a theme of development. And this is a word that we see in phrases like underdeveloped countries, which is often obviously applied to African nations. Development is usually seen as a pragmatic or economic issue, not a philosophical issue, but you've actually treated it as, as a philosophical or even an ethical issue. Can you explain that and say something about, uh, you know, why is your approach to that Ethiopic, as you put it? Okay, that is um, a very interesting question. Uh, what I did, I think you're referring to the claims that I make in moral philosophy and uh, development. Yeah, that's right. Uh, in which I distinguish between uh, development as a material concept and development as a non-material concept. Uh, when we look at development strictly uh, as a uh, material concept, what we are essentially doing is um, we say something like um, uh, individuals and the places um, in which they live uh, who have uh, managed to develop um, appropriate technologies, uh, appropriate techniques of farming, uh, appropriate techniques where service industries are available of, um, of managing them uh, with uh, the uh, conception of the uh, technical and technological development that the West um, has already galvanized, which has become a, a kind of global standard. And then uh, we judge the activities and the histories of these people uh, by judging them uh, against the uh, attributes of um, technique and technology. Uh, that um, captures for me uh, the essence of what the West um, has been uh, contending uh, development is. Uh, I contend but uh, development is much richer than that. Uh, the way individuals and the societies in which they live raise their children. Um, the way that they deal and interact with their neighbors and friends, uh, most particularly uh, the way they interact and deal with uh, human beings who are not related to them by blood. Um, uh, but 
um, um, manage to somehow uh, de develop the possession and the appropriate uh, practice of um, uh, generosity, um, of kindness, uh, um, of care, uh, of empathy, and of compassion when they deal with human beings are also facets of what it means to be uh, developed, uh, profoundly speaking. But this um, idea of development in the non-material sense uh, has been neglected and uh, marginalized by proponents of the idea of uh, development in the West. Um, very few um, philosophers, uh, even now, um, I contend, uh, do not take um, certain villages, uh, certain village practices, uh, certain norms, um, certain passions and interests that individuals have uh, uh, in small knit communities uh, that uh, reflect the way they deal uh, with these human beings uh, to be measures of what it means to be uh, a human being which we must respect and um, uh, applaud, uh, but rarely do we do so. Do you think that there's even a kind of antithesis or competition between these two conceptions of development? Because what you just said is, well, it's one thing to you know increase your GDP, yes. increase economic output, let's say, and it's another thing to actually have people in your country be happy and have you know flourishing interpersonal relationships and so on. But I can imagine someone might say, oh, yes, yes, Professor Kiros, you're right, but let's strive for both, right? I wonder, actually, behind what you just said, whether there is an extent to which the strive to maximize something like economic output might actually undermine some of these traditional values that you want to emphasize more. I think you said it um, quite well, and, and that's exactly what I was hoping to say. And I thank you for saying it for me. That's exactly what we do, as a matter of fact. Uh, and then um, we blame individuals who, in the process of exercising these moral virtues, uh, that's why generosity, magnificence, and kindness, uh, caring for others, expressing empathy, uh, compassion, and so forth and so on, in the end are but if they don't translate in the existence, in, in, in the existence of actual GDPs, uh, actual capital, then uh, individuals who have these virtues are simply shunned. Uh, they, 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 they are uh, contrary to, way, to the way they should be uh, treated. In fact, they are treated as failures. These are individuals who do not know how to generate and manipulate capital. And I think, if I understand you correctly, we have a sort of um, disconfigured uh, the relationship between being a good human being uh, and being um, good to, 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 the, to the degree that you produce some capital, which, of course, uh, some proponents of this vision uh, argue would produce the uh, self-mastering individual, uh, as you know, Frederick Douglass and many others uh, before him uh, uh, have been um, uh, critiquing this idea of self-mastery, which is divorced uh, from the commitment and responsibility that we have uh, to care for others, even at the expense of reducing our uh, GDPs, if it translates into making, as he put it, other human beings happy. And if you're doing this work as a political philosopher, how do you see the contribution that the kind of great figures of Western political philosophy can make here? Because in your work, you actually also do draw on like Marx 
and Smith, and you studied with John Rawls, a famous political philosopher at Harvard. But on the other hand, you're critiquing this kind of standard Western economic theory. Um, is that is that just because you're a Marxist, or is it, I mean, what, I guess what I'm asking is, what, yes. what's the relationship here between these kind of great uh, so-called Western political figures and the the cultural values that you're drawing on from the Ethiopian tradition. Okay. Um, uh, if you recall in uh, Moral Philosophy and Development, there is a chapter there on Adam Smith. What I do with Adam Smith there is um, I try to bring these uh, two facets uh, of development together. Uh, on the one hand, um, uh, as you know, uh, Adam Smith uh, famously uh, articulated uh, the idea of the invisible hand, um, uh, which does miracles uh, by itself, and one uh, simply accepts the consequences of these miracles, since in the end we do not know exactly how the market does certain things, uh, particularly when it does them right. Mm-hmm. But then the same Adam Smith also draws from Scottish moral philosophy and contends but there is a limit to what the market could do for us. Moral virtues such as compassion, sociality and kindness in fact are invisibly limiting conditions on the excesses of the market. When the market cannot do certain things invisibly right, then if these virtues, compassion, kindness and generosity are still intact in the self, then what the market does uh, could be controlled by what the market cannot do, uh, namely the existence of these virtues, that certain uh, human beings uh, stay away from practicing, uh, thinking that these are the virtues of the poor. So you don't want to reject the kind of relevance or value of these famous Western philosophical works on politics, you want to go into them and maybe find underexploited resources. Absolutely. In the case of John Rawls, whom I fondly remember, one of the most ethical human beings whom I have had, not only was he handsome, he was gentle, he was patient, he was kind, and of course very, very sharp mind. But to my great dismay, I learned after I studied the theory of justice that uh, Rawls actually never sat down and read Marx before he developed his theory of justice. Because like philosophers before him, he did not think Marx was sufficiently philosophical or of philosophical interest to inform his work of justice. And then how is it possible uh, to neglect Marx? And then uh, call your work Aristotelian when Aristotle himself was the first who developed these neat distinctions between use value and exchange value, which he develops in his metaphysics, to which Marx and Hegel both went back to examine the market. Mm-hmm. I was stunned uh, when I discovered that uh, Rawls did not even engage, forget capital. He could have at least engaged the economic and philosophical manuscripts of 1844. 
deeply philosophical, the idea of alienation, those four or five forms of alienation, and the way they could be integrated uh, with the market as it does its invisible work. When the market uh, alienates us, then once we are conscious of our alienation, then we try to redeem ourselves from this unnecessary burden by these alienations that we should be aware of, that we are not aware of, so that we can control the market, so that we can control what capital could do. And you're quite right. It's um, my interest in Marx and uh, my knowledge in Marx, most particularly my familiarity. Well, I should say knowledge. I think I should give more credit to myself for the uh, extraction of surplus value, for example, uh, at the point of production. That made it possible for me to even develop the idea of development as a moral concept. Mm-hmm. You see, Marx is very present um, uh, in everything um, that I have done thus far. Okay, so obviously, um, as a political philosopher who's from Ethiopia, you've drawn on these non-Ethiopian sources very extensively in your work. Let's now turn to some of the Ethiopian sources that you've drawn on, and these actually are the same texts that we've been covering in the last few episodes. And maybe we can start with these works that were translated from other languages into the Ethiopian language of Ge'ez. So, for example, you have the Book of the Wise Philosophers, which was translated from Arabic, you have, and ultimately goes back to Greek sources. You have the Tale of Scandes or Secundus, which again goes back to Greek sources. One of the issues that we kind of confronted and wrestled with when we were working on that episode is that these are works in Gaze, an Ethiopian language, and they were influential in Ethiopian culture, but they ultimately derive from sources from outside that culture, usually originally Greek. Do you think there's still a sense in which we can think of these as constituting the beginning of an Ethiopian philosophical Indeed, tradition? Indeed, uh, they are. I appreciate the question. Uh, this uh, gives me an opportunity to uh, think through uh, abstract claims that I have made in my book on uh, Zoraya Yaqub, uh, The Philosopher of the Rationality of the Human Heart, in which I distinguish between uh, what I call a classical Ethiopian philosophy and modern Ethiopian philosophy. And of course, the texts that you mentioned, the Book of the Wise Philosophers, uh, the piece on uh, Scandies, uh, belong uh, to what I have called um, uh, classical Ethiopian philosophy, in which I claim that they are only philosophical uh, following Sumner in a broad sense, I contend. And the, the, the broadness is twofold. One, uh, they are uh, philosophical, but not um, originally philosophical to the Ethiopian philosophical landscape, because I just contended these are works of appropriation. Uh, Sumner made the case, and um, I think he's quite right. Uh, what these uh, texts tell us is that uh, Ethiopians are very inventive borrowers. They take these texts that, for lack of a better term, they Ethiopianize them. But the text, strictly speaking, did not originate in Ethiopia. They are borrowed from Greece, even the Mediterranean, uh, the area in which you work. Uh, when they come to the Ethiopian sphere, uh, they adapt the, the, the Ethiopian rhythm, the Ethiopian harmony, uh, the metaphors, the examples, the uh, worries of the individuals uh, are, uh, reflect um, uh, their Ethiopianity. Uh, so in this sense, yes, they are broadly speaking philosophical, uh, but B, they, they are not philosophical in the original sense that they originated in, in Ethiopia. They are philosophical 
as um, exercises in how a tradition appropriates traditions that come from elsewhere by giving it a, a form of um, originality. But is not original in that sense, which led me to develop the second category, which I called um, a modern Ethiopian philosophy, uh, to which I bring Zara Yaakov. Yeah, so that brings us to Zara Yaakov. Um, and as you said, you've written a book about him. Uh, he's a 17th century rationalist philosopher from Ethiopia whose work was brought to light in the mid 19th century. And something we talked about in the previous episode on Walda Hewat, who was his student. So the two treatises come to us conjoined in one manuscript. Mm-hmm. So one treatise by Zara Yaakov, one by his student Hewat. Uh, one of the things we grapple with when we talked about them is whether these works are authentic. Right? So were they really written in, by Ethiopians from the 17th century? Is it a later forgery? Um, so before we go into the content of these works and how they've affected your own thoughts. Do you want to just say something about, I mean, presumably you think they're real. Sure. (laughs) Uh, I'll be very happy to do so. Uh, As you know, uh, the the debate on the uh, authenticity of the Hatata and, of course, the uh, uh, Waldahiwa text, uh, which is an attempt at uh, developing social ethics out of it, uh, after the Raya did the groundwork, uh, has been questioned. Uh, Sumner was the uh, first foremost Ethiopian philosopher. I knew Sumner very, very well. We were friends uh, when he was alive. We dined and wined together at my home, uh, at his uh, at his home. Uh, each and every time I went to Ethiopia, Sumner couldn't wait until he welcomed me at the airport. Uh, he liked me. There is a joke. When he first met me, uh, he, he told me right my face. Uh, uh, I envisioned the Tedros to be a small man. Um, so he saw me as uh, this tall, um, the tall, uh, yeah, tall folks, man. Tedros yeah. is not a small man. Yeah, exactly. But that was his vision, <laughs> and then um, that led to um, a lifetime friendship. I used to go to Canada to visit him, to make a long story short. So the claim uh, that he makes is um, quite convincing to me, that the Hatata uh, couldn't possibly have been written by Padre Obino. He contends, uh, because when we compare his mastery of Gears uh, with that of the uh, Hatata itself, uh, I made sure myself that I read the Hatata in Gears. Uh, additionally, I made sure when, when my mother was alive uh, that we enlisted the services of two highly competent Ethiopian priests whom uh, we brought to our home. We gave them about two, three weeks with Ethiopian tage, um, which is our local honey drink. They would hang out with us. I remember all this very fondly uh, for two weeks struggling with the Atata, and they gave me a translated version of it, which uh, I have in my possession. And so you so, don't think there's any way that so Dorbino is this um, this Catholic priest who discovered them, and so the question is whether he forged them or whether they were original texts from the. It's remarkable century. that Conti Rossi, I think, the 20th century famous Italian Italian scholar, is who is uh, contending that Father Urbino, <laughs> who lived 200 years later. <laughs> the Hatatas were published, I believe, in 1667. Uh, Urbino was living in Ethiopia in the 19th century. And so how is it possible for him to recount the battles, the uh, tension 
relations between the, the Jesuits and the Ethiopians, the two emperors, uh, Sosionos first, who converted to Catholicism, and his son Fasilidas, uh, who came to power, during which time then Zara Yaqub uh, decided to release himself from the uh, bondage uh, to that cave, um, in which he tells you um, uh, he developed uh, the idea of what it takes to be uh, a philosopher. And now here Conti Rossi is contending, uh, 200 years later, um, uh, Father Urbino uh, could write from his, his imagination, in the absence of the actual data, yeah. uh, where the hatata reflect the data, uh, the metaphors, the rhythm, uh, the language um, of the hatatas is profoundly Ethiopian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think if it, that's... I think. I mean, I, I hope I'm not I making a very defensive case for I mean, it. I don't know. I mean, I don't know Gaiz, so it's hard for me to say. But from the reading I did, I would say that if it's a forgery, it's one of the greatest forgeries in the history of Ever. Exactly. So. <laughs> it is as if only someone as perfect as God, and since we attribute perfection to God, uh, could possibly uh, produce a forgery like right. that. So your book on uh, Zara Yaakov is called Zara Yaakov, Rationality of the Human Heart. And you obviously touch on many themes from the Hatata, the treatise by Zara Yaakov. But I actually wanted to ask you about the title because it seems sort of counterintuitive. Usually, mm-hmm. I mean, people often talk about the difference between following your heart and thinking with your head, right? Correct. And on the one hand, there's a very literal sense in which Zara Yaakov thinks that the human heart is the seat of rationality because he follows Aristotle in placing reason yes. in the heart, yes. which is kind of surprising for a 17th yeah. century thing. Yeah. But on the other hand, he also situates the emotions, the passions in the heart. He thinks of the heart also as the seat of prayer to God. And I think it's especially coming from Greek philosophy, which is something that I think about a lot. Uh, there's often a very strong contrast between rationality on the one hand and emotion and the passions on the other hand. So to me, it's very interesting that he would have put both of these in the same organ, as it were, or mm-hmm. not as it were, literally the same organ of the mm-hmm. human body. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that tells us something about Jacob's approach to the whole concept of rationality? Precisely. Uh, I think that's um, what um, he thought he was doing. Um, what is not clear to my mind is this, and uh, I'm still thinking through this, and uh, I'm not completely satisfied. Was he using lubona, uh, which is the term for heart, broadly understood, as a metaphor uh, to capture what you refer to as the emotions? And implicitly distinguishing them from the precision of the brain and what the brain produces, was he even aware that there is a distinction to be made between what the brain does versus what the heart does? Or was he subordinating what the brain does to a limited degree? to what the heart does so broadly and so comprehensively. In short, is it possible for Zorai Yaakov um, to have thought that the heart broadly understood is both a 
transcendental organ and a physical organ in the same sense that the brain cannot be because we're so accustomed to thinking of the brain to be strictly speaking a physical organ well, at the heart and it couldn't be an accident that the ancient Egyptians for example uh, developed the practice of literally sucking out the brain thinking that it's a dispensable organ whereas the heart was so precious for them why is it that the Egyptians uh, thought so highly of the heart but did not think equally highly of the brain might it be because their um, scientific knowledge was so limited uh, that they did not know what it is that the, the brain actually did uh, in contrast to the heart that they had studied this is a position that one could take I don't take that claim seriously because you know, Egypt was also scientifically from what we know highly developed if they were sufficiently developed to know much about the heart I assume that they are equally sufficiently developed to have wanted to know something about the brain and my contention is that they did and yet they made a choice between privileging the heart and not so privileging the brain I am wondering if in the mind in the soul of Zara Yaakov to be uh, consistent the heart was a special organ because he's contending that what we call thinking is not the activity of the brain although he doesn't say this it's the activity of the soul and the soul is the house of the heart so the heart is both a transcendental organ that does the thinking and also a physical organ but additionally it's the seat of thinking and for him for lack of a better term, a religious thinker would be making, uh, would restrict his gifts. I would say, as a spiritual thinker, he's um, keenly aware that what he calls um, uh, thinking uh, takes the form of uh, thought impulses. Not merely irrational emotional impulses, but thought impulses that seem to percolate in the heart and then they find their way to what I call the brain which he does not call the brain for which they become released in the form of speech acts in the form of language so that we can speak about what these thoughts do for us this is a very long-winded way of making a case for Zorayako that he may not be thinking of Lubona merely metaphorically as generations of thinkers have done from him it's my impression that he actually thought that the heart is a transcendental organ that produces thoughts and my students at Berkeley uh, recently have been exposing me to literature that seems to be making the kind of case that I'm making now mm -hmm. that the brain research uh, is not do it and know it all anymore there is a tremendous interest 
in the human heart. It's not simply uh, this organ uh, that we have uh, uh, unjustly separated from the brain and treated it uh, as something that houses um, uh, thought and uh, emotions that are uh, a sort of thoughtless. Uh, what you cannot think, you attribute it to the heart. Zara Yaqub is reversing the order. In fact, what we call thinking, even when we think that it is um, a function of the brain, actually is not. The brain is too small of a physical organ uh, to house the kind of thinking uh, that um, Zara Yaqub uh, we could do through the heart. In the form of, for example, in his case, prayers. It seems like whatever he thinks about the physical role of the heart, mm. when we call him a rationalist, that I mean, that, that makes sense because he encourages us to reflect critically on religious tradition and things like yes. that. That's what people mean when they yes. call him a rationalist. But I think it's interesting that you're pointing to the fact that for him, reason is a much richer kind of holistic um, function than just this sort of thin critical tool that you use to maybe weigh up arguments on one side or another of an issue because it seems to me that one implication of what you're saying is that um, if the heart whether physically or metaphorically is the kind of center for everything the soul does then actually what we have is this unified kind of uh, power of self expression or reflection and the fact that that would include emotion and prayer as well as reason, as exactly. well, that sort of thinner notion of reason. That's I think right. that's a really fascinating idea. I think so. Uh, again, um, uh, Peter, um, uh, if I do a sequel to uh, to, uh, to to the book on the Rayakob, um, I might want to take uh, a few courses um, at Harvard from the biology department uh, to know much more than what I do about the heart so that I could understand both exactly what the heart does and what the heart does not do. And the philosophy of cardiology. <laughs> yes, because <laughs> when I gave this paper at, um, at Harvard and made these bold claims about the heart, a few medical uh, doctors challenged me, and one of them told me that um, I needed to take a course or two in biology. <laughs> I'm going to take him up on it. Maybe he's right. Maybe there is something uh, about the heart um, that I need to know uh, so that I could uh, restrict my understanding of it, uh, not to both be transcendental and physical, but strict physical but I doubt that these courses that I'm going to uh, take to, uh, at Harvard are going to uh, make me think otherwise yeah they might be on a different wavelength on, on a different wavelength <laughs> yeah. I think so I think you've captured um, uh, what um, I'm trying to say uh, on the behalf of uh, the human heart and the metaphor for wholeness uh, uh, is one of it uh, it's also in the case of Zara Jacob um, that's also uh, where he thinks God is in the heart Mm. Speaking, so speaking of a sequel to Zara Yaakov, let's briefly say something about Walda Hewats before we end. Uh, he did write a sequel to the Hatata of Zara Yaakov, and you said a few minutes ago, I think you said that uh, it's a work on social ethics, which That's extends what, what Yaakov's I think. doing. Yes. So do you, do you see him as really just applying Yaakov's ideas in a different context, or do you think that there's some degree of disagreement between the two of them? My impression is that there is a disagreement between these two. Uh, because the Rayakob is jettisoning tradition completely. Remember, he says, when I left and decided to live in that cave, he said, 
this was the best decision that I had made. Because when I lived outside of the cave, human weaknesses, which took place in the form of unnecessarily unreasonable wars in Ethiopia, among Ethiopians themselves, between the Ethiopians and Jesuits, including the Ethiopian priest who betrayed him, who gave him to the Jesuits, gave him an understanding of uh, human beings, that he says, as essentially liars, sluggish, he says, lazy, and deeply disappointing. Was what I learned, he tells you, in that cave for two years, with the transcendent as my companion, is a knowledge that I could not have gained if I had remained outside. He had made, I think, an original claim for us philosophers that we need to stay away and think in solitude, alone, in order to create something useful. Because there is something that the companionship of human beings does to us. Among other things, uh, we become easily vulnerable to their prejudices, their provinciality, their narrow-mindedness, and they don't uh, give us an opportunity to exercise what we could do and think through the transcendental gift, namely the endowment of intelligence, he says. His only prayer always was, God, make me more intelligent than I am now so that I can understand your greatness. Because I'm so imperfect, I'm so limited um, uh, that I cannot possibly take you on uh, to understand um, your ontological structure, who you are, the one who is there, uh, but not in the form um, of the way in which the tables and chairs and other external objects are. You are there. I want to understand the nature and structure of this there, but I need to be given an intelligence with me to do this and do it right. And for this, I need to jettison human beings, the traditions and the customs that they have established. Whereas Haywood is more apt to say, well, uh, follow tradition. Of course. Yeah. In fact, he draws from the appropriated versions of the uh, classical Ethiopian tradition. As uh, Skender, uh, the Book of the Wise Philosophers, he's filled with them with this uh, appropriated, not critically thought through metaphors and examples that corrode the book of the wise philosophers, Skindis and other Ethiopian classic texts because they are embedded in tradition and custom and in unthought through rituals. The Rayakub is breaking through all this and saying, no, I'm going to use this God-given intelligence that I have, Amuro, and uh, use it to think for myself, and hopefully uh, the outcome of my thoughts might be, he's very humble, of benefit to others. There is no proselytizing in Zara Yaakob. I hope I'm not developing a hagiography. I have to be very careful. 
So you see him as a much more radical thinker than Haywatt? That is, in fact, what led me uh, to make these uh, radical um, distinctions between classical Ethiopian philosophy and modern Ethiopian philosophy. Modern Ethiopian philosophy is modern in the deeper sense. Why is it modern? It is modern because for the first time an Ethiopian thinker is committing suicide as it were, against rituals, customs and traditions and going after Ethiopians, the, the Jesuits and continuously contending. Now I'm going to use my own God-given intelligence to figure things out. Okay, that's actually really interesting because it, it suggests that Hayward was kind of returning back to the classical Ethiopian tradition that th- Jacob had rejected to some extent. I think so. Uh, you, the authorities, you and Chike, have done the work. <laughs> well, <I'm, laughs> you and Chike might be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's what I, uh, that's what I think, uh, Professor Adamson, but I don't want to dogmatize this. I don't like uh, dogmatizing arguments. Uh, do not uh, confuse the passion for the arguments with... Uh, dogmatizing them. Right, Sarah Jacob wouldn't like that anymore. No, not at all. No, not not at all. Okay, well thanks very much then to Teodoros Kieros for coming on the podcast. That was a great discussion of Ethiopian philosophy and how it's influenced his own work. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. We'll next be turning to philosophy in the Islamic culture of sub-Saharan Africa, and that will be occupying our attention for the next few episodes. So please join me and Chike for that here on the History of Africana Philosophy. (laughs) 